Good morning. Good morning. One more time. Good morning. My name is Neil Grogan. I'm the Children's and Military Ministry Director here at GBC. And I'm excited to get to continue with you in our series through the Gospel of John. And what we've been learning along the way thus far is more and more about who Jesus is. And not only are we diving into the text and learning things like historical background and di- different aspects, different people group, like last week Dave taught out of John chapter 4 and he, he gave us this picture of the, the strife between the Jews and the Samaritans and all the background that was going on with that. But through God's word, through week after week, God has been teaching us more and more about his character. And hopefully through our study of John today, we'll continue to see how much we need Jesus and just how capable he is to give us freedom. Work, 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 work. Thank you. <laughs> so Dave said earlier, one, one of my other jobs besides working here at Grace Bible Church is I work for an organization called Mighty Oaks. And Mighty Oaks is this faith-based organization uh, that essentially just comes alongside veterans, active duty, and first responders uh, who are dealing with, with trauma or, or whatever. Um, a lot of guys are, are struggling with these like spiritual wounds they, they got in war, and, and they don't know what to do about it, and they find themselves having spiraled so far down that they're at this loss and a lot of times what I hear when they come through our programs, through the sessions I'm at, is this phrase, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to go home and kill myself. And you know, I, I, I just, each week we pray about it when I'm out there and, and we just say, you know what, God, we welcome that kind of pressure because you are big enough to answer that kind of prayer. You are big enough. And, you know, last week, like Dave said, I was in California, and I just, I got back, like, late, late last night, and, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to juggle life, right? But, you know, when I, I flew in to San Luis Obispo, and they asked me, hey, can you take the van, go pick up the guys from the airport? I was like, yeah, sure, whatever you need, you know, and so, I drove the van, I went to the airport, picked these guys up, and picking up about eight of them at the time, and um, I was just kind of observing them. I was just kind of watching them, you know, watching their countenance. And what I could see was these just like broken souls, like physically like slumped over. These like proud men like served our country, like have done some crazy stuff, like I get to work with a lot of special operations guys, and when they come through, they're just, just physically, you can see the brokenness on their bodies. And it, and it wasn't just that they were unsure of what they signed up for coming through one of our programs, you know, like, what is this faith thing all about anyway? Um, but you, you can literally see the physical weight of their affliction in their lives, and, and they have been holding on to their brokenness for so long and looking to the world to answer the problem of their hearts 
And, and, and I believe that they and many of us, when we experience some sort of uncontrollable trauma or circumstance or loss or physical ailment even, for some reason we hold our fist around it and we look to the world to solve that problem in our heart. What I believe is because of our sinful nature, we are not only unable to free ourselves from that kind of hopelessness, but we're actually afraid of the freedom we could have because it becomes our norm. It becomes our badge. So what we're going to do for the next half hour or so is just let the character of Jesus wash over us. My hope is that you'll see from the scripture how Christ displays four aspects of himself and his desire to free your heart. So let's turn to John chapter 5, verse 117. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 17. If you're using the black Bibles in the pews in front of you, It'll be on page 890, John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man who was there, he had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, and he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jew said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said that to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had helped him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working, and until now, I am working. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we're we're here to praise your name, to bring glory and honor to you. And I just ask that you would meet us, that you would teach us from your word, that we would see our inability and your great ability. And God, 
I thank you for being a, a sovereign God who sees us, who knows us, who challenges us, who calls us, and who never stops. God, I, I ask that my words would glorify you. You would search my heart. You know my desire. And that our church would be blessed today by your word. It's in your name and we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. So in this text, we're going to see four aspects of how Jesus illustrates his desire to free us up, to heal us, and that he sees and he knows us. He sees and he knows us. He challenges us. He calls us to more, and he never stops. So I need to, before we go on, we kind of got to set the picture and catch set the stage and catch the picture, right? So in verses 1 through 5, I'm going to reread it. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to, up to Jerusalem. You know, this is the only miracle, only sign in John that doesn't name the feast. And so everybody scratches their head, and they're like, why? Why doesn't it say it? And here it is, guys. Here's a great answer. It's giving you a reason why Jesus went to Jerusalem. Simple. He went to Jerusalem. That's what matters. Jesus went from Samaria and then went back to Galilee, then went to Jerusalem. And so here he is. He's in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there's this sheep's gate and there's pools there that they call the Pool of Bethesda. And, and to me, I picture it like a waiting room at the VA because that, that's kind of my experience with the VA. A whole bunch, sorry, shots fired, right? That's been my experience, but... That's kind of the picture I have of what, what it looks like maybe today. But in, outside this pool, there's this multitude, the Bible says, of invalids. A multitude of people who are broken. A multitude of people who are paralyzed, who are blind, who are lame. An, a variation of problems and issues. And so they come to this pool, placing their hope in this pool. And the scene is that the... This pool carries some sort of common superstition of the day. That the pool will be the thing that heals you. It's like uh, some get-fixed-quick scheme. At the pool, the Bible says that multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed people, they're, man, they're hoping to get healed by their own will. And I, and I say their own will because of the background of of what we know about that healing. See, here's the context. If you were the first one in the water and you beat everybody else when the angel put his finger in the water and stirred it up, then you would be the one to be healed. And so by whatever ability, whatever help you could get, whatever you could muster to get to be the first one in that water, you're healed. What scheme can you create what thing can you look to? What aspect of creation are you focused on that will be the answer to the problem that goes past the surface level of our physicality? That sounds a lot to me like survival of the fittest. In that picture, it tells us a lot about the human condition. We, because of our sinful nature, believe that through our own metal, 
our own ability, that we can fix our current problem in the heart. Our current problem of brokenness, whatever that may be. And the Bible has some things to say about that. In Titus 1, 15-16, it says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both the mind and the consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. How are we as believers, like, by our works, denying the ability of God by looking to ourselves? <sighs> Y'all, we are, we are completely unable to heal ourselves, to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps because we need more than just a physical healing to be righteous. And the Bible paints a crystal clear picture of the deceit that's in our hearts and that we need so much more. You know, Jeremiah the prophet, he asked this interesting question. I believe that Jesus in this, this text we're going to cover today, he answers that question. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. And here's the question. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? The deceit of the heart. In this text, I believe it says that Jesus does. Jesus understands what we cannot. Jesus knows us. And in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus saw this man in a multitude of invalid, a multitude of, bro of brokenness, in a multitude of marginalized. And John says that Jesus knew him. And this is what the Bible says about God's knowledge. Psalms 139, 1-3 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And you are intimately acquainted in all of my ways, with all of my ways. Or Psalms 44, 21 says, Oh Lord, you have searched, oh, I'm sorry. It says, he knows the secrets of our heart. He knows every little thing that you think will satisfy you. Even before you Know yourself sometimes. And for this paralyzed man, he knew that not only was what was wrong with him, the, the, the physical nature of what was wrong with him, but he knew so much more. He knew the idolatry of his heart, the pool of Bethesda, the victimhood and misery that he sat in day after day after day looking to creation to solve the only thing that the Creator can solve. And so I, I, I think of it like, when we, when we come to texts like this, it's like we should look in a mirror and ask ourselves some questions. Like, what does Jesus know about me? Like, get past all the facade and the the 
ungenuine nature that we just have, that we project out through social media or, or whatever else, and we stand in front of the mirror and we say, what do you know about me, O Lord? Search my heart. Or we might ask, God, what is the idolatry in my heart? Please search me. Or we might need to ask ourselves, what am I placing my hope in? And if the answer isn't Christ, then we've missed the mark. You know, a good friend of mine, he grew up in a very hostile and volatile environment filled with abuse and with hate. And the circumstances of his upbringing produced in his heart hatred. And his heart was hardened by stuff he couldn't control. He was just a kid. But he, ha- he, he had to look for a purpose or a place to place this hatred. And so he joined the military. And he did very well. He was real successful. He uh, promoted quickly. He led many men in combat. Um, and, but with each deployment that he went on, he experienced more and more and more loss. And more and more hardening in his heart. That would lead eventually to his complete hopelessness because no matter how hard my friend tried, he couldn't fix himself. Then one day, he was invited to a wedding by his platoon commander, his boss. And this gunny, he went And he had all of the hate in the world in his heart and all the hopelessness you can imagine. Marriages destroyed, multiple marriages destroyed, relationships ruined, people burned by that hatred. And he took all of that and he went to this wedding. And he was drunk and he was belligerent. I mean, could you imagine this kind of guy at your wedding? You'd be like, get out of here, man. You're causing a scene. Let me tell you how he was treated. With love. No matter the excessiveness of his belligerence, he was told he was loved. He was told by people at this wedding that they were praying for him who did not believe in God, who hated God for what he could not control, what he went through as a child. And then all of the compounded mess he went through in combat. And he was told that he mattered to them. And my friend, he needed to know that he was loved. And Jesus sought him out. And he knew his need. And Jesus knows your need. And he sees through your pain, through your idolatry, And he challenges us. And he challenges what we think we know. Jesus challenges us. Verse 7 through 9. Picking back up, he asked, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? That's the question. I think about myself, I might have answered him, like sitting on that mat, I can only imagine, you know, this guy comes up to me randomly, I've been coming to this spot for 38 years, trying to get well, and this guy walks up to me and says, like, I don't even know who Jesus is, right? That's what the Bible says, and this guy walks up and he says, do you want to get well? Of course I want to get well, what do you think I'm doing here? Been coming here day after day and placing all of my hope. All of my efforts in this thing they say might work. He walks up to me and asks that kind of question? Of course I want to get well, Jesus. But this thing, it keeps failing me. And they say it'll work. But I just can't get down there first. That's how the man responds. He, he answers him with an excuse. He says, no one will take me into the pool. He keeps depending on creation to fix him, himself, and it keeps failing him. Essentially, he's saying, I believe, I keep doing the same thing day after day, expecting a different result, which is the definition of what? Insanity. Insanity. And Jesus, answered, he challenges us by asking a question to call us on our idolatry. Do you want to get well? It's like he's saying this, y'all. Think about that thing you're holding on to. And Jesus is saying, how's that working out for you? How's it working out for you? Let's pay attention to verse 8. This is so important. Here's what Jesus said. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. With this powerful word, Jesus heals the man. Get up. With his powerful word, he removes every excuse that we could ever come up with. Jesus says, get up, or in the Greek, egero, which means to be awakened or raised up. But the metaphorical understanding of this word is to come alive after being dead. And it says, and the, and the man at once was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. It doesn't say he struggled to get up. It doesn't say he couldn't walk. It says he got up in strength, picked up his bed, and started moving. 38 years of not doing those kind of things. Completely healed physically. But the enemy and ourselves and our culture, it wants us to be a victim. It wants us to stay on the mat. It wants to feed you lies and, and to keep your focus off of the only thing that can heal you. The enemy will tell you, don't get up, because that is your badge, that is your excuse. And the, the enemy wants you to cling to a false hope. 
He doesn't want you free. He wants you in fear. Afraid to be free. But the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to rise up and be healed. He wants you free. The world will give you hopelessness, but Christ will give you hope. So ask yourself, what is my mat? What am I staying in bondage for? Why? What am I trying? What am I telling myself? Am I trying to fix myself with my own power? If what you're doing isn't working, why not try something different? If what you're doing isn't working, why not try something different? Do you want to get well? And do you believe that Christ has the power to do so? After that wedding, my friend I told you about, he went to a Mighty Oaks program. It was about three years ago. And y'all, he was so drunk. Like he rushed back from the wedding, went to the barracks at Wounded Warrior in Camp Pendleton. And he had already like missed three. And they told him like, if you miss another one, we're going to hit you with a negative counseling. And so this guy, man, he rushed home and he was just drunk out of his mind. He even drank more because he had a hangover is what he told me. And and he's just drunk. And you know what he packed for a week-long program? A garbage bag full of shoes and a gas mask. <laughs> That's how out of his mind he was. And he took that out to a 27,000-acre ranch that separated from everything for a week. That's the state, right? And my friend was faced with the gospel, and he was asked, do you want to get well? And he was challenged with truth, and he had to face his own inability, and he saw, this is what he saw, that Jesus was the only way he would ever get unstuck. And this is, these are the things he learned, like Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's, I am unable to get across, get back to God because of my sin. And Romans 6, 23, he learned that the wages of that sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he learned that in Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you would be saved. And that's what he was presented with. And during that encounter with Christ, his fear was put to death and he was set free. You were created with a purpose. And starting with a relationship with Christ, you are called to so much more. You were made free for this, to worship and to be holy. Jesus calls us. Let's go back to the text, starting in verse 10. It says, now that day was Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Seriously? 38 years? The man, he answered them, the man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Where? In the temple. And he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. And nothing may worse may happen to you. 
And the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Jesus came back around to that man and established a relationship with him and assured that that man knew exactly who it was that healed him. He didn't wander off with questions like Jesus ensured he knew. Where did Jesus find him? In the temple. What do you do in the temple? Worship. Worship. And Jesus came and found him. He called him to sin no more. He called him to holiness and worship. And holiness and worship are products of the freedom we experience in Christ. They cannot happen before a relationship, though. Otherwise, they're misplaced and corrupted, just like those religious leaders who are asking the question, like, why are you holding your mat on Sabbath? That's work. Stop it. You evil man. They're putting holiness and, and works in front of a relationship with the God of their fathers. And Jesus, no, 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 no. It begins with knowing me. Go and sin no more. And he calls him to be holy with that statement. He calls him to more. James 1.22 says to be a doer of the word and not hearers only. Now go and be obedient based on the relationship you have with me, based on the thing that I've done for you, how I've saved your life, how I've freed your heart, how you will spend eternity with me, how I have given you now my righteousness, which you could not attain on your own. And now when the Father looks at you, he sees me. And you have been set free. Now go and be holy. And now go and worship. Obedience brings joy. And authentic worship produces obedience. And what the religious leaders missed out about Sabbath, or they missed about Sabbath, was that entering the Lord's rest means looking up at the Father and seeing what He has done, not what you have done. Share those things with others. Who do you know that needs the love of Christ? Who needs to hear the gospel? Who is stuck on their mat? And how can you introduce them to Jesus? When, when my friend, he got home from that program after he accepted Christ, and he told his platoon commander, the guy who, who invited him to his wedding, what had happened. And his boss, he started crying. He started crying, and here's why. You know how most marriages, ceremonies, you know, the bride and the groom, they don't see each other before they come at the altar, right? Before they walk down the aisle. But not this couple. This couple met in secret before the ceremony to pray. And here's what they asked God. They said, God, would one person experience the love of Christ from our wedding? Would one person come to know you, Father, through us? through this ceremony. God, Lord, would it not be about us, but would it be about you? And that was their heart, and that was their prayer. 
the day that was supposed to be their day, a call for obedience and worship from the king of the universe who saved their lives was how they responded. And that was the moment of grace my friend needed. And Jesus saw him and he knew him and he went to him and he challenged him and he called him to more. Jesus never stops working. He never stops. He said, Christ said in Luke 4, 18, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is why Jesus came, and he never stops. Last two verses, 16 and 17, it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. I want to close this with a lesson I learned this last week. You see, God God brought this guy from Wyoming to California for this program. And when he got there, that countenance I told you about was just broke, just brokenness. Like he wouldn't look you in the eye, really. And, you know, a couple days in, his team leader, he asked me, hey, Neil, can you go and talk with this guy? Because I serve on staff for this organization as um, a mentor, or, which is a, essentially a biblical counselor for them. And so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go uh, talk with him. So right before dinner, I sat down at the table with him, and I started asking him questions, you know, and... Uh, he would respond. He, he answered all the questions, but he wasn't like holding a conversation, you know, when someone's guarded, you know what I mean? And, and, and there's no vulnerability. I don't want to give, I don't want to give any of, put down any piece of my armor away. Where'd you grow up? Wyoming. You know, like, okay, and? And, and finally, through that conversation, me like playing 21 questions with this guy, you know, he, he came to this place and he said, you know, I, I guess, I, guess I, I just need to beat my inner demons. I need to do it. You know, I said, no, brother, can I just encourage you to wrestle with that right now you have a team and we're much more effective when we work together than we are when we try to just do it on our own hoping that he would start to open up in his team and that would segue into gospel opportunities for the gospel to be applied to whatever's going on in his heart, whatever those inner demons were. And so a couple days later, um, we teach this class on marriage and uh, he's never been married. His team leader comes up to me again. He says, hey, Neil, can you, can you take him during this breakout session and just go on a walk with him? I said, yeah, man, Sure. Hey, let's go. So we went up on this hill in this beautiful 27,000-acre ranch, and, and we're talking. And he's actually talking to me now. So he had wrestled with and answered the, the previous challenge that I gave him. And we're talking about God and stuff and, and whatever assumptions he has about God, not wanting to offend other gods if he chooses one God, and you know, having to work through a lot of stuff like that. 
And, and as clear as I could possibly do it, I tried to walk him through the gospel. And call him to a response. He said, no, that's not really for me. I said, that's okay. You know? And again, I said, man, I just want to encourage you to wrestle with what you heard here today on this hill. Wrestle with whether you really think you have enough willpower to fix yourself. He says, okay, I can do that. We go, we go back down the hill. And Friday comes, and we're done. And we're getting ready to go to this graduation at Tascadero. And so we're in, like, pure ad, ad, admin mode, you know? Like, I'm sending emails and churches and pastors and connecting guys. Like, I, I don't want any of these men to land and not have a connection and a way to continue to grow and be discipled. And so I'm running around trying to scour the whole United States of America for places for <laughs> these guys to land, good places that preach the Bible and love Jesus. And, you know, he... <laughs> I had a question. I was like, hey, is this too far to drive with another guy that had came to know Christ that week? And I went to look for him, and the students were filling out student critiques, you know, like how much we sucked and, like, uh, how the food was gross. No, they was like, good things, good things, good things. But um, sorry, Dave, I said that word. Um, <laughs> he, I go in there to find this guy. In the middle of all these groups, uh, this group, 25 people, they're all talking and figuring things out, and I'm looking for them, and I get tapped on the shoulder. And it's, it's that guy. We had already done all the baptisms and stuff for other guys. And uh, he said, Neil, can you tell me a little bit more about baptism and the gospel? And in my head, I thought, can you just give me a second? Because <laughs> I have all these tasks and procedures to accomplish. Well, by the grace of God, that's not what came out of my face. <laughs> what came out of my mouth was, yeah, man, let's, let's do it. And right there in front of everyone, that man came into a relationship with Jesus. I taught a class earlier that day on Acts 8, baptism, what it is. You know, I told him, you know, baptism is this outward expression of an inward change in our hearts, signifying what Jesus has done for you. And we had already closed up all the hot tubs and stuff. We baptized guys. It's bougie in California, right? <laughs> but uh, he says, you know I, know, I know we already all that up, but, you know, when Philip, when the eunuch saw the water and asked Philip, like, what's keeping me from getting baptized, just jumped out and did it right, up, right there. He goes, there's a water fountain in the front. Can I just get baptized in there? I was like, yeah. And so, like, one and a half feet of water, I baptized this guy, and his whole countenance changed raised to life in his resurrection. And that man's sins were made dead on the cross. 
Jesus didn't stop pursuing that man. And I was at the right place at the right time. And when we love God and love others, they become the priority. And I want to challenge you to this. Because Christ is always seeing and always knowing and pursuing and challenging and calling like he, had, he may have done with you. Believer, how do you express worship? How do you bring the gospel of Christ with the spirit of worship to others? And if you don't know him, I plead with you that that thing you're looking for is him. And he is the only thing that can set you free. He's the only one with the power over life and death. You cannot resurrect anything. God will use you in your obedience. And like Jesus says later in this chapter, you'll marvel at his works. Let's pray. Oh, most high God, we worship you. We glorify your name. We lift it up. And Jesus, I just ask that you would be moving in this place, in our community, in our spheres of influence, and that people would come to know you as king. That they would, in your strength, put to death every idol, everything standing in their way, God. And would we be a people who bask in your character, who understand who you are, and respond with worship and holiness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.